bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. In 2021, Manitoba confirmed its first cases of chronic wasting disease in deer. Over this winter, uh, it's confirmed some more cases, and the total now in Manitoba is 20 cases of deer with positive confirmation of CWD. So out of the total 20 cases discovered so far, 18 of those are mule deer. And of those 18 animals, 17 of them are bucks and one female. Two of the deer discovered with CWD in Manitoba are whitetails and they are both bucks. This is obviously a concern for the province of Manitoba. Now, 20 cases does not seem like a lot since 2021. Um, that That's awesome. But I think what my concern is, and is that, you know, a lot of these things, and we even saw this with COVID, right? Like the cases, they start out like they're slow and, and the growth and the spread is, is slow. And then we see these exponential growth in infection cases. That was the whole thing with COVID was to to sort of um, circumvent that that upward exponential growth in cases and get it to get it to like tail off quicker or flatten off quicker. So, you know, in two years, uh, Manitoba's had 20 cases. I think time will tell here in Manitoba. Like if, you know, we start seeing, you know, like the 40 cases and then 80 then 100 like now we're starting to see exponential growth and you know possibly you know more areas across the province but right now um this isn't looking too bad for manitoba uh with cwd uh just at 20 cases most of them are in mule deer and most of them are bucks which is very consistent with what i've seen in uh like alberta which has very high incidence rates of CWD, uh, mostly mule deer and mostly affects bucks. Uh, has a lot to do with uh, the bucks traveling around and intermingling, you know, a lot more uh, as they travel around to breed and stuff. As I understand it, they're more susceptible to picking it up and, and spreading it. So fingers crossed for Manitoba um, that maybe via hunting and, you know, increased Tag allocation in, in certain areas where there's clusters and stuff can, can allow them to stay on top of it. Some new research coming out of um, the University of Mississippi in the United States on chronic wasting disease. So one of the key elements of a chronic wasting disease management program is what they call surveillance or the surveillance program. It's what wildlife managers are doing by collecting heads or tissue samples from hunter killed deer is they're looking for positive confirmation of CWD in particular geographic areas. And then they're looking for the demographic, uh, which species, which age, male or female. 
that type of information is what allows wildlife managers to then go to like a control program. So if they know it's in, you know, mule deer and they know it's in bucks, then if in a, in a particular geographic area has a very high incidence rate or, or that's where it first shows up in a jurisdiction, then you can understand how surveillance data can then lead to a control program where they go into an area and very um, selectively target a particular species in age class and sex class and and try to you know remove the infected animals that worked in new york state so new york state had an outbreak uh, in white-tailed deer and they did exactly that and they managed to actually go out and kill all the deer while there was only a handful of cases uh you know out in the wild and they man they managed to eradicate it from wild deer in new york state because you know they they got on it really quickly so anyways that's what scientists basically have right now wildlife managers is they got to actually have dead deer and the tissue samples and and they rely on that this study from mississippi state university started sampling deer scrapes and so in deer scrapes you got urine and then on the rub branches above the scrapes they uh, the deer lick those and so there's saliva and so they were collecting the samples from the soil and off off the saliva samples off of the um, the, the rub branches above the scrape and they sampled about a hundred, I think it was 99 scrapes, and they positively confirmed that 35% of those scrapes uh, were tested positive in the soil for CWD. So now this becomes a tool for wildlife managers to actually systematically kind of survey across the landscape and understand the prevalence rate or, or, um, concentrations of CWD in the deer population in geographic areas without having to rely on hunter killed deer. So, you know, in, in science, this would be kind of known as like non-intrusive method, methods of, of sampling, you know, like getting a hair sample and doing DNA analysis on it. They don't actually have to capture the animal. In this case, you know, deer are killed by hunters uh, and that's where they get the samples from. Other than when you're dealing with CWD, uh, the non-invasive method of, of testing in the soil, the deer that have the prions die anyways. <clears throat> so in a way, it's actually better when an infected deer is a hunter-killed deer and subsequent testing tests that it's positive and then the, the hunter <clears throat> gets rid of, you know, disposes of the meat in landfill or incinerators or you know whatever the jurisdiction has for it so the value i see in this new science is it's another tool in the wildlife managers toolkit to be assessing cwd on the landscape and it's simply by going you know to deer scrapes they can probably do it around um, feeding bait stations because saliva and urine are deposited around those areas possibly bedding areas heavily used bedding areas those sorts of places where deer congregate and uh, especially where they congregate and they're going to the bathroom. One of the interesting things about the Mississippi uh, State University study was that the rate of 
um, CWD incidents in the samples collected from the soil of the deer scrapes um, was about the same prevalence rate of CWD that had been done by studying um, the actual deer populations. So samples taken from hunter kills, they'd come up with a certain percentage of incidence rate in that population. And so this method <clears throat> was coming up with numbers that were very close to, to the actual uh, tissue sampling methodology. So what that does is it validates it as a method that if you're sampling soil or scrapes, <clears throat> you're going to come up with an incident prevalence rate, sorry, that's very close to what's actually in the animals. Because one of the questions I had my in my mind right away is, well, you get a buck traveling from scrape to scrape to scrape, that buck's infected, that buck might create uh, four scrapes and pee in all of them, and then each one of those scrapes comes out as a positive. So whatever they were doing in their study, uh, I don't know whether they had camera traps and they could differentiate, you know, different individual animals that were at, at it. Anyways, they came up with a prevalence rate that was um, validated by um, tissue sample studies and prevalence rates in the population. So that's cool. Uh, another example of, you know, scientists in the background working hard to come up with ways to better help wildlife managers uh, with every aspect of wildlife management. So, you know, a few episodes ago, recall, I covered the story about the federal government, <clears throat> the Minister of Department and Oceans and Fisheries, making the announcement to not renew the open net fish farms uh, in the Discovery Island area off Vancouver Island on the West Coast. And that was sort of a decision that was, um, <clears throat> you know, made lots of First Nations and conservationists and, and salmon advocates and stuff happy. Uh, it was basically an end to these open net farms, which a lot of science were pointing to the fact that it was the, the open net farms <clears throat> that were creating very high levels of sea lice uh, that were then getting on to the passing uh, wild salmon, uh, the little baby salmon as they were going by, the sea lice was getting on to them. The juvenile salmon do not have scales, they have skin, and the sea lice basically like eats them alive. Once they develop their hard scales, then the sea lice attach to salmon, um, but they don't eat through that armor and, and consume and kill the fish. So, so the impact of wild salmon was on the migrating, um, the migrating juveniles. So anyways, that decision was made. There was actually n not that long ago, a contingent of representatives from several first nations on the coast of BC traveled to Ottawa to meet with the minister to, to sort of, um, thank the minister for, for that decision. They supported it. However, there are two First Nations on the coast of BC that are filed a court challenge on the federal government's decision to not renew those licenses, um, citing that it goes against <clears throat> their constitutional rights to be able to fish uh, via open net farms. 
a company that operated several of those open net fish farms called uh, MOI or MOI uh, Canada West, which is a division of MOI, which is a Norwegian seafood company. So there's this Norwegian seafood company was operating a Canada-based company, and they were um, running these these fish farms. They've also brought a court challenge up against the federal government's decision to not renew those licenses. Uh, or I think what they've asked for is they've asked for a judicial review of the decision <clears throat> to shut down these 15 salmon farms by not renewing their licenses. So a judicial review is like outside of a, like a court case. It's a, you know, a judge will review to ensure that the federal government's decision was made um, with due process, you know, basically. Uh, sometimes a judicial review, if it is uh, found that the decision lacked um, things like consideration of the law and due course and those sorts of things paves the way for then a formal court uh, court challenge so anyways uh, it's kind of interesting you know there's there's this issue of the science saying that open net fish farms are hurting wild salmon stocks but these fish farms employ a lot of people and in fact the operations off the west coast of Vancouver Island I think I read was like 645 people uh, of which quite a number of them were First Nations. I believe some of the fish farms uh, were owned and operated by First Nations uh, companies so that's partly why they're upset as well. The decision to get rid of these 15 uh, salmon farms, uh, the companies that run them said that, that that's going to cut their, their workforce by about half in, in British Columbia. So, you know, the classic situation in natural resources in this country is, you know, science impact to something in the environment versus jobs and economy right uh, in this case and then it also involves um, First Nations rights as well so another very classic example of this same story we've heard through lots of the stories that I cover here in Canada you know the lobster fishery issue um, I got another one to talk about here the mackerel fishery so it it's yeah it's just a it's a very makes for very tough political um, decisions because I think everybody wants government to make the right decision to protect the environment, but then it comes at the cost of jobs, right? And sometimes these decisions are like, they're bang, they're made, and the time frames are really short and because of the environmental protection reason, reasons. And then there isn't these long transition periods, like 10 years of trying to transition away from ocean-based fish farms to land-based or for workers to retrain and transition. It's just like it's a very short time frame in which this decision is made to when people got to scramble and figure out what to do if they want to maintain employment and on the economy side. So, I mean, I get it. I, I understand all sides and it's, um, 
you know, jobs are important in the economy. I mean, it's easy, I guess, to sit here and go like, well, you know, I'm more in favor of protecting the wild salmon stocks. But if your job's not at risk, um, then, you know, that might be easier to say. I, I wonder what it would feel like to actually be in that position of being a, a force-based community, a fishing-based community, uh, to be an actual operator that owns all this equipment or the business or whatever. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the flaws I see happening in Canada, and uh, this will probably um, resonate with the mackerel story coming up here, is the signals of troubles with things in the environment. They're decades and decades and decades ahead of these these definitive decisions, which then impact jobs. And And it's almost like, you know, the scientists or the conservationists raise these issues and then it's like it's not a big issue but we're getting indicators and we should make some changes but then that's going to impact jobs and that that whole thing bobbles along for decade after decade after decade and all while that's happening the actual resource itself is diminishing less and less and less and less to all of a sudden it's like you either have imminent extinction or you make a decision and it's hundreds or thousands of jobs. You know, that story was echoed in the East Coast collapse of the cod stocks, you know, so the warnings were decades ahead of the actual closure when the cod stock had actually declined and an entire way of life and an economy in the Atlantic provinces disappeared in, you know, a matter of, you know, a few short years after that decision. So it, it's, a, it's a recurring theme in a lot of stories. And, you know, I don't know how we get out of that loop other than the idea of the precautionary principle, I guess, has to be embedded more in decision-making when we first start to see these red flags, uh, we got to start changing the dial right away, lessen the impact on economy, um, jobs, rather than waiting all these decades to when the stock might go extinct or the resource might go extinct, and then thousands of jobs and workers are displaced, and, and that's it. They have nowhere to go. So, yeah, interesting when you start kind of piecing together the threads through all these stories uh, across the country, uh, across all the episodes that I cover. Now in Nova Scotia, staying on the topic of fish farms, Nova Scotia this winter imposed a moratorium on applications for new ocean-based fish farms. So it will not accept applications for any um, open net ocean fish farms. Uh, they will for um, kelp and shellfish, but not for, for salmon, until it completes uh, a full assessment and mapping and rating of its entire coastline of Nova Scotia, which would essentially, you know, identify areas where open net fish farms could be sited and they're not going to have significant impacts on the marine ecosystem. So that process is still underway. The Nova Scotia um, 
fisheries and aquaculture minister is still holding firm to not issuing new licenses or leases. Um, they're getting a lot of pressure from industry to start issuing some. But until that mapping assessment is completed, uh, the Nova Scotia minister is, is holding firm to not allowing any to go out until they actually know where to put them. This, this sounds like a little bit of a compromise from the previous story and the things that I were saying is, you know, at least there's, there's a delay in industry, there's a delay in kind of like maybe a potential, you know, um, little job boom in Nova Scotia. But if they put them in the right place and allow the industry to operate, then they're not going to be in this situation 20, 30 years down the road going, you know, it's impacting the marine ecosystem and we've let it go for too long and we have to shut it all down. And then all these people in Nova Scotia are out of, out of a job. So the assessment is being carried out by an independent division of one of the provincial government agencies called the center for marine applied research. So, um, sounds like they kind of are, you know, based on that name of the, of the Institute that they're kind of taking a scientific, uh, approach to mapping out, the coast of Nova Scotia and, you know, looking for, you know, zones that are good to put uh, ocean-based fish farms in. So Atlantic salmon are the preferred species for ocean-based fish farms because in captivity, they grow faster and bigger and make more protein. <clears throat> One of the issues on the West Coast is there's the Pacific salmon stocks, but it's actually Atlantic salmon that are in these um, and steelhead. Uh, mostly Atlantic salmon that are in the ocean-based fish farms. And so when they have these escapes, that causes all types of issues, you know, from a, um, a salmon conservation perspective is that you're mixing these different species of fish that have never come in contact with each other. The Atlantic salmon are more aggressive. They live in a more competitive environment on the Atlantic uh, in the Atlantic Ocean than the Pacific do in the Pacific Ocean. And so there's always been these fears and stuff over the Atlantic salmon out competing, uh, sort of like an invasive species does. They always seem to have the upper edge when they get introduced into a new ecosystem. Well, in Nova Scotia, then it, <clears throat> at least if that's what they decided to farm were Atlantic salmon in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, maybe there would be less risk around um, doing that. That begs the question, well, why don't they use Pacific salmon uh, on the Pacific coast? And I think primarily it's just an economic thing because they just don't grow as big and as fast as Atlantic salmon, you know, just like cows. They have, you know, certain strains or whatever that they'll have all over North America because they grow really fast and, you know, the farmers get paid by by weight kind of thing and and that's that's just the way fish farming operates too it's agriculture right it's farming so you get the things that grow the biggest the fastest so uh, staying on the theme of fish got quite a few fish stories going on in the country right now so british columbia uh, has a gold problem a gold fish problem Goldfish that are being released into natural water bodies has become the number one invasive species issue in this province right now, invasive goldfish. 
there are literally thousands and thousands of these things in multiple lakes all around the province now. It started out closer to the lower mainland, moved to the Okanagan, and now apparently there's like way up into northern BC, there's lakes and stuff with invasive goldfish. And like we're talking like the ones that you get from the pet store, like your little goldfish bowl goldfish. Well, when you turn those things loose, uh, you know the old story, it's like the goldfish grows to the size of its bowl, you put it in a bigger bowl and the fish gets bigger and bigger. Well, some of these goldfish living in, in natural lakes are being reported as big as footballs. And like they're grotesquely things because they're so, they're so fat. But so they multiply more, they're more aggressive, they're competing with native fish, uh, you know, for food and space and resources and hence the fact that they're an invasive species. So I guess electroshocking is one of the only ways that they can get rid of them unless they have a small lake where they do a program where they capture the natives, move them out, poison the lake, uh, get rid of the goldfish, and then put the natives back in. I don't know of any lakes uh, in BC that they've used the rhodonone poison on recently. I think it would probably be very hard to get that approved nowadays. Uh, so I think they're looking at other ways so to get rid of invasive goldfish. So this summer coming up, if you catch a goldfish anywhere, I guess anywhere in the country, uh, bonk it. <laughs> and uh, maybe put it on the barbecue and see what it's like. Because if it's, if it's big and tastes good, then hey, eat the invasives. Uh, skipping over to Newfoundland, Labrador, and Nova Scotia. Last year, I talked about a decision that DFO made, the minister again, putting a one-year um, moratorium or constraints on, uh, actually, it was a complete closure on the mackerel fishery for uh, the commercial fishing sector uh, in the Atlantic provinces, and as well as um, the bait fishery uh, for one year. So that is coming up for renewal. Uh, the federal government will have to make a decision uh, about whether to reinstate the closure on the commercial fisheries. It did place um, some limits on recreational fishery. You can still fish them recreational. They just, um, I think, down down the possession, the daily uh, personal limits for recreational fishers. Uh, so they wanted to basically cut back on harvest to give the population time to rebound. DFO has classified the mackerel stocks uh, on the Atlantic provinces, the Atlantic coast fisheries as being in the critical zone, meaning that it's a, a fish stock that's quote-unquote severely depleted, so at risk of going extinct. That's the critical zone. And it's apparently been this way for since the mid-1980s. How I understand the problem with the mackerel stocks is it has to do with the demographic. So right now, the population's age structure has collapsed, meaning that most of the fish are young and small mackerel that do not produce a lot of eggs. So the larger, older 
um, high egg bearing individuals have been taken out of the population. So this population does not have a very good reproductive engine to grow itself, uh, especially when the conditions are, are really good. That coupled with the fact that the rate of fishing has increased, uh, particularly uh, a high spike in the, in the harvest in the 1990s to early 2000s. The commercial side of the mackerel, there are, you can buy mackerel in the store. Um, they're really, really good for you because they're one of the, um, the high oil fishes in the omega-3s uh, and stuff. Uh, great little fish. I've cooked them up. Uh, fantastic. But there's a big, big commercial industry around catching mackerel in Canada for the East Coast's lobster fishery. It is, it is the bait of choice in the lobster fishery, which is kind of weird. Um, I've heard this term before that one of the flaws of the pen-raised salmon in the ocean is they're being fed fish. Those little brown pellets are ground-up fish. They're non-commercial or non-desired, non-target fish or coarse fish, whatever you want to call it, that are typically caught by large commercial operations, uh, especially off the coast of South America. They catch tons and tons of these fish, they grind them up into pellets, and that's what they feed the salmon, and they're worth a lot. I've read statistics that have said that salmon, ocean-raised salmon are a net loss of protein to humans. So the amount of biomass of fish that are caught and killed that could just actually go to feeding people is turned into pellets, which then that tonnage grows a smaller tonnage of salmon. They're worth more, but it's not an incremental... Like you're not harvesting one unit of these coarse fish and growing 10 units of salmon. It's more like you're harvesting 10 units and growing one unit of salmon. So it's a net loss of protein to uh, people of the world. This is the way um, ocean-based fish farming is, is, uh, is, has been classified. So here's a case where these mackerel are, are good fish to eat. I think the recreational fisheries, people are catching them and they can them and you know it's 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 great. It's it's uh canned canned fish, canned mackerel. But so we're catching these things by the metric tons from a depleted stock to use as bait to catch lobster. Uh, it's not that the lobster are being fed them and they're growing bigger. It's just a bait. Um, so at the end of the day, once the the mackerel and in, in the bait are probably like you know sloshed around in the water and and uh, diluted a little bit, they just get tossed back in in the ocean. And the lobster are on a per kilogram basis worth more than the mackerel, so that's what the lobster industry is around. So I kind I kind of wonder about this just from that perspective of you know we're catching mackerel in a commercial industry to catch another marine animal. Uh, I love lobster, but I'm, I like mackerel as well. Uh, if I lived on the west coast or the uh, east coast, I'd probably catch and eat both myself. Now, the, the industry in Newfoundland and Labrador and the seafood companies and the unions and stuff are basically saying the DFO has it all wrong. 
there's lots of mackerel out there. They see lots when they're out there. The fishermen see lots. They, they see these big swarms of, of um, mackerel and like, hey, there's, there's no depleted stocks. One of the scientists from DFO uh, that I read in an article said that what happened, what they think is happening is when the mackerel stocks become severely depleted, they go in, there's a phenomenon where they aggregate. And so that's what fishermen are seeing in these, these aggregates and schools of mackerel of these younger, smaller size fish, uh, which may look like there's lots in the ocean, but there may not be. I don't know. I'm not an East Coast fisherman. I really know zero about that uh, based on, you know, I'm just going off of, you know, news stories that I'm, I'm trying to glean, glean from and talk to you back. But, but um, I have read, you know, in a number of sources that there is a discrepancy between what fishermen are saying and what DFO is saying, Was it, which is exactly what happened in the Grand Bank's cod stock collapse. There was this difference between DFO models and what fishermen were actually uh, catching. So, so yeah, the federal minister of Department of Fisheries and Oceans is going to be having to make a decision here pretty darn quick what to do. One of the things that proponents of the commercial fishery, mackerel fishery on the East Coast are saying is at least give us a small quota, 25,000 tons, which is about 10% of the spawning biomass. That is, they, they said, should not impact the total, um, the total number of fish that are capable of reproducing. So in other words, the depleted stock could still potentially, uh, or should increase if they are allowed to take a 10% harvest of the spawning biomass. One of the rubs on the East Coast, especially with the commercial fishers, is that right south of them, the U.S. still has a commercial fishery on the mackerel. Obviously, same stocks, just moving back and forth across the border. They do have a reduced quota in the U.S. because their stocks are down as well. But the Canadians are saying if the U.S. had a complete moratorium, maybe we could accept it a bit more. But they're fishing on a reduced quota, so let us fish on a reduced quota. So, interesting situation again. I think, you know, a lot of those things that I just mentioned before about, you know, depleted stocks. Uh, they're talking about, you know, the signals for these stock depletions in mackerel going all the way back to the 1980s. Um, fishing increased during, you know, between 1990 and 2011. And now commercial fishing is closed it's going to impact the lobster fishery where there's a lot of money and a stock that's teetering on you know on the edge of collapse again fish stocks environment versus the job situation and the economy and a situation that's been allowed to go on and uh, for decades and decades and decades and now push comes to shove and the decision is going to have severe consequences for either the fish or for people. Tough situation. Glad I'm not in politics, <laughs> federal politics. If I was, I'd probably make some really good decisions and then probably get fired. Um, Saskatchewan, deer. So this issue of deer deprivation on farmers' 
hay crops is still an issue in Saskatchewan. There were some meetings and stuff uh, earlier this month where messages were being delivered to the Minister of Environment in a, in a public meeting saying this is a huge problem, it's a huge hit, it's costing uh, farmers a lot of money, these deer eating up the hay, and the ranchers are upset that the Minister of Environment um, in January refused to give out depredation licenses so more deer and elk could be shot. <clears throat> and that's been an issue with the farmers. They can't do anything about it other than just watch all these deer and stuff come and eat their haystocks. So apparently just recently here, the Premier, uh, Scott Moe, has said he's going to now look into the potential of issuing some depredation tags. There's also been calls to increase provincial hunting limits, uh, especially for mule deer in southern Saskatchewan because they're on a draw system. People are saying they should just go to a general open season with more tags. This was the update to this uh, story I gave you a couple of episodes ago when uh, somebody from Saskatchewan reached out and said, hey, part of the problem here is is the CWD incidence in uh, prevalence rate in southern Saskatchewan is really high and hunters don't want to shoot these animals if they got 10 tags they don't want to go shoot them because if you shoot a buck it's almost guaranteed to be CWD positive and if you shoot two does you know there's a good chance that one or both of them are going to be CWD positive so so the idea of using hunting as a tool and increasing the hunter harvest to deal with um, crop depredation or hay stack depredation uh, doesn't seem like it's going to work. This is also a situation where it's like if you got these hay bales that are just out there exposed and the deer coming and eating at the stored hay that's not you know secured and the solution is you want tags to shoot the deer that come by, it really begs the question of how many deer can be shot to actually reduce this problem of eating the hay and pooping on it and trampling all over it and stuff. Like how many deer need to be killed and for how long? If you don't secure the attractant, I mean, to me, if you got... 10 tags, if you got an extra 100 tags, um, for every 10 deer that are killed, there's 100 more that are going to be there the next day eating the hay, right? Would society really accept going to an 80 to 90% cull of all of the deer in southern Saskatchewan because of this? I don't think so. Um, gosh, we've seen all kinds of stories where it's like, you know, People even don't want to see invasive wild pigs killed. Like there's the Save the Wild Pig Foundation. They have a right to live too. So I don't think a, a, a massive release of depredation tags uh, with the goal of, you know, eliminating 80, 90% of the deer in these ag areas is really going to go over. Using hunting as a tool to drive deer populations down doesn't even sit that well with hunters. One, hunters don't want 
20 white-tailed deer, you know, uh, in their freezer or not very many, it's a, it's a lot to deal with. You know, the numbers of animals that per hunter that would have to be killed in a cull situation are pretty darn high. We don't have the situation in Canada where we could have professionals culling animals and animals going into butcher shops so the average person could come in and buy a cut here and there. Uh, that's done in New Zealand. It's done all across Europe. Uh, it's just, it's not allowed here in North America. Uh, as part of the provisions of banning market hunting, right? Um, you're probably all familiar with that historical story. And ideological, you know, or philosophically as well, like hunters, they like the idea that hunting is used as a management tool to control populations. You hear that all the time. But then it's like, okay, now we want you to drive this population to incredibly low levels. Hunters are like, well, we don't want to do that. Like we want to see deer. We want to be able to go out and hunt from two years from now and be able to find a deer. But if we, if you send everybody out there to get rid of most of them, then what are we going to hunt in two, three, four, five years, right? So that's kind of the, you know, I think a generalization of the hunter's mentality, which is why in this type of a situation, you know, hunting and liberal hunting regulations is probably not going to lead to a significant decrease in the population wherever jurisdictions have brought in professional hunters to knock back deer populations that upsets the hunting community as well because they're like well why aren't you letting us do it there's some really classic studies from pennsylvania where professional sharpshooters were brought in to deal with white-tailed deer populations in order to bring down the density of deer to reduce the transmission of CWD throughout the various herds. And hunters didn't like that. They were like, let us go hunt them. So it's a really complex situation when it comes to agriculture, complaining about deer, and then what do you do with them? Do you just kill them at will forever? Um, hunters don't want professional shooters to do it. And hunters may not want to do it themselves and, you know, shoot 20 deer a year and then not be able to find one for their kid in three years from now. So uh, interesting kind of dynamic going on in Saskatchewan, you know, with this as well. You know, bottom line, it's no different than these communities in BC that have all the problems with the bears. If you don't secure your attractants, you're going to have problems with wildlife to the point where a lot of these animals have to be killed. I know it's a huge cost for ranchers to have to fence somehow secure like the hay, but it might be something that has, has to be done. Where I live in southeastern British Columbia about 20 years ago, this was a problem with elk herds eating uh, hay crops, alfalfa crops and those sorts of crops while they were still growing. The damage was really severe. There was a lot of outcry from um, the ranching community. They tried to go to deportation permits. This wasn't enough of them to really make a dent. What happens, I found here with the elk, is they become nocturnal. They're in the fields at nighttime, and by the time it's shooting light in the morning, you see the last bum going into the forest off the edge of the field. So hunting was almost like, like a, a non-starter when it comes to the herds uh, of elk in, in the in the hay fields 
what they ended up doing is the provincial and federal government made a uh, funding program and a whole bunch of these ranchers applied for grants and they put up those great big huge 12 foot high fences all around their private land there you go problem solved animals can't get at your stacked hay your bales or at your growing crops but then the fences became an issue herds couldn't you know they were trying to cross highways and all of a sudden there was a 12-foot fence there and you got like 300 elk on the highway and they can't get into across the field because there's now a 12-foot fence there and cars were hitting them and people see these big fences i think people like the the idea the aesthetic of seeing deer and elk in a pastoral setting of a farm field and so when you see these big fences go up to keep them out i think that that rubs the public the non-hunting and the hunting public the wrong way because it's like now they these deer and elk don't have access to to be out there you know quietly grazing away on on the green hills of of a farmer's field and it's like well it's their private land right and they're growing crops there so again another really complicated situation in canada of deer and and private land and people's interests and economy and what to do with animals and but i think the bottom line there is they might have to look at some sort of um provincial federal subsidy program over a certain period of time to say like you got to fence your hay bales in you know bring them out of the field stack them all up do whatever you have to do so they don't rot on you and then they got to have a 12-foot fence around them otherwise you're not getting depredation tags and your deer problem probably going to go away if they can't get at the hay bale so i don't know um hey if you're from saskatchewan and you know more about this story um feel free to reach out uh, i just find it's a super interesting one alberta um so earlier this month alberta introduced its own changes or its own i don't know if it's new um provincial firearms act and it's a pushback and opposition from the culture of alberta of gun ownership pushing back against the federal government's bill c21 and originally when the amendments to bill c21 were going to scoop up all these hunting firearms and shotguns Alberta pushed back against that. Alberta and Ottawa did not have the friendliest of relationships. And so this was a shot across the bow from Alberta. So in a nutshell, as I understand, Alberta's uh, provincial firearms legislation is it will give the minister in Alberta the power to enact regulations that govern how the proposed federal legislation of gun collection will be administered in Alberta. So as I understand that, Alberta wants to have a regulatory tool at the provincial level to basically um, prevent firearms from being confiscated from Alberta citizens by the RCMP under the federal legislation. Crazy. Um, like to see how that one's going to unfold um, but there's a line drawn in the sand here between alberta and ottawa on gun ownership Th really interesting when you look at the provinces in canada that are currently pushing back against the federal um, gun bills uh, and the confiscation programs saskatchewan and alberta have 
as far as I can see, in Manitoba, the highest rates of firearm licenses per 10,000 citizens of the province. Alberta has 742 firearm license holders per every 10,000 citizens. Saskatchewan has 957 firearm license holders for every 10,000 citizens. And Manitoba has 667 firearm licenses per 10,000 people. Ontario, which has the most number of firearms owned, only has 412 firearm licenses per 10,000 citizens. So the provinces that are pushing back against the federal buyback confiscation program the hardest are Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Ontario apparently is saying boo about the federal government's plan to come in and confiscate firearms from Ontario citizens. I know BC said boo about it, uh, but our heartland provinces of hunters and farmers are standing up for their gun ownership and they're ready to keep the federal government and the clawback hands off their firearms from their provinces uh, citizens so interesting man there is a lot going on in Canada uh, on all these different fronts but uh, anyways uh, for the remainder of March uh, that's what's going on around Canada and we will see you in the next episode